Hello, everybody. So we have the pleasure, Kartik and I have the pleasure today of having a conversation with Dr. Barbara Logan-Smith, who is the executive director of Teach for America Greater Delta area. Is that right? Okay. Um, so uh, Barbara and I are, are friends. Well, well, I guess we met last year and uh, have had some pretty sort of profound moments together. And she's just somebody that I really respect and love and uh, wanted to have this conversation with you today about we're doing this series on on racism basically and i think at uh, in in the moment that we're living in in history in the world we wanted to go on a journey of unpacking that for ourselves and we are looking at it uh from the context of Malaysia, what, what that looks like in our context. But obviously, because of the moment of history that we're in in this world, we wanted to have a conversation with you um, about uh, what, what this means to you as a Black woman from the United States of America. And so wondering maybe if you can just share with us, um, what does, the, what, I, I guess, what does this mean to you as a, as a person? And let me clarify to say, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, and let me just clarify, when you say, what does it mean to me, racism as a whole, this particular moment in time, like which, or all of it? Yeah, I, I guess maybe like as an, maybe as an individual from mm -hmm. sort of your lived experience mm -hmm. uh, as, as, as a Black woman in America, what's that meant to you? And then I think we can unpack things further as we go along but really want to start with like just you as a person, what's yep. that been like? So I, um, not maybe, maybe 25 some years ago, my dad just got really interested in understanding our family history um, and had these twin cousins who actually used to babysit me when I was little. Um, start doing some digging and like asking all these questions and trying to understand the lineage. And um, what we ultimately discovered is that the family, the Logan family had had uh, land in Texas. Um, and that um, great, great, great grandfather, somebody um, married a white woman and ended up getting run off the land, right? Which was interesting because on my maternal family side, um, my family also had somehow through the whole process, my grandparents were sharecroppers, um, which in and of itself is like one of the most fundamentally racist experiences anybody could have. You've now suddenly gone from so-called enslavement to it's now your responsibility to keep actually doing the same thing you were doing before on this small plot of land that I'm going to charge you so much money to use and then I'm going to charge you so much money for tools and equipment and then I'm going to charge you so much money and then I'm never actually going to give you what your crop or value is worth so you stay um, in a subservient and an indebted position and you have to basically do whatever I said the same way you had to do that before and somewhere in my family story is a story of my great um, grandfather Steve um, being killed by the Klan because they had actually like tried to stake claim over some portion of land. Um, and that was just not to be had. And so my family, my understanding of my family's history is wrapped in racism. And I can remember times, my, my entire maternal family is from Mississippi, which is part of my region. My entire maternal family um, born and raised into this process of sharecropping, only thing they really knew, my great um, grandmother was actually Native American. Um, we're trying to figure out what Native American. My mother likes the idea of Apache, so she says that, but like, that's not real. I think it's Blackfoot, but whatever. Um, this is also part of my story though, right? Because my past is hard to get a hold of because of the institutions of racism, because folks didn't like have their own name, their own land, because somebody else was filling out the forms. Um, uh, for, for even for census purposes, right? So like you see handwriting on census forms and you're like, oh, did they? No, actually somebody else would have filled that out, which includes things like other people picking people's races. Um, and so on some forms you see that my um, great grandmother, um, Willie is noted as um, mulatto and other forms she's noted as Native American and there's other forms just like not even noted. Like it's just very strange um, to be a person 
in a country where people are always talking about legacy, they can't fully track your legacy. Um, and so I've got real clarity about my mom's parents. I spent real time with them. I've got stories that they've told, but for some reason, I also was born into a family where my grandparents, um, my maternal grandparents were each three. There were like three kids in a land where like everybody usually had way more kids than that. And so all those people are gone. Um, and so I've lost the opportunity to even really get access, firsthand story access to those people. Um, and to our heritage and history and like, but I wonder who originated this recipe and like, I can't replicate it because grandma's not here. And also the legacy of all the people that we might've been able to tell, have told those things and have tell our stories are, are not um, as accessible. While everybody else is on genealogy.com and like finding all their people all the way back to so-and-so. I don't, I don't even have access to that. Um, and so sitting with the reality that being a black woman in America um, just, just takes things that you don't even recognize you're missing. And so as a kid, I was so connected to my grandparents. Um, I was the kid who'd be like, mom, I'll see you next week. Like I'm packing a week's worth of things and going to stay at my grandmother's. I'll go to school from there, I'll come home. Like that's what I'm gonna do, especially in the summertime. Um, and so having felt that close to them, I hadn't had the experience of somebody dying um, until my grandmother died when I was in high school. People died, but it was like, oh, mom, sorry, you're sad. I don't really know them. I'm going to go play now. But when my grandmother died, the connection that I really had to what had been lost was not just her, who I love so dearly, but also, again, this whole set of stories and legacy. And so what does it mean that part of her life was spent sharecropping? How much of that has to do with her dying? Um, how much of that has to do with the hardship that she lived through? How much of that has to do with, right? Um, and I'm saying that about my grandmother, but also about my grandfather. Um, we made the journey, as many families do. I'm saying we, I was not even around. Um, but the family made the journey from, Missi from Mississippi um, to the north, and we went to Milwaukee. And my family began the interesting experience of not having racism be um, as overt as a sharecropping system, but having it now take the form of industrial slavery. Um, and you now work for this place and you have to do all these things. And my grandfather never really got over um, being away from the land. And when I think about that, I think about him both being African in his descent and being Indian in his descent and like what it means to actually be connected to the land versus suddenly connected to all this concrete versus being connected now to all these like tools and machinery that we're like not actually giving you a chance to have this connection that I actually think is like, also I don't garden, I don't do stuff outside, like I'm not that person, but my grandfather was. <laughs> <laughs> so I think about what it means to have lost access to that. I think about my grandmother sometimes when we would be in um, grocery stores pulling me close and telling me to stop talking so loudly around all these white people. Um, and I would be like, what? I don't have to not talk around them. They don't get to, right? But it's the difference in generations. So my grandmother and my grandfather absolutely lived um, in a time and space where kids disappeared. People were hung. People were killed. People were hurt, right? Like that's her story. And so part of her protection right, was her version of what people now call the talk. No, no, sweetie, let me help you understand how to be around white people so you can live. Mm. Let me help you understand how to be around white people so you don't actually end up experiencing all that is available to be experienced, including being raped, including being tortured, including having people come to your home, including having people burn crosses on your yard. Like, all of that could happen to you. And I think one of the things that's really hard to sit with in the 21st century is that I am back to a place of sometimes getting really anxious when Chris has gone too long. Because today, <laughs> in, the, in the time where as a kid, I was like, grandma, that can't happen. I am fundamentally aware that he could not come home. That he could not come home because the police that we pay to protect us took him out in the middle of the street in front of everybody. He could not come home because as just happened, um, in Atlanta, he's out for a jog in his own neighborhood and somebody decides to say he's a thief and kill him on the street um, in the banner of like, I'm making a citizen's arrest. No, that's not an arrest. You murdered that man in the street. 
And so I live with the reality that I have incredible privilege if I consider it in the perspective of who my grandparents were and what they had and didn't have. If I consider it even on either side with grandparents, right? Like I could probably try to take legal course or action if somebody tried to steal one of my houses. I could probably um, have some kind of recourse maybe. But I also still now find myself living in a time where being Black means your life, the living of it and the expansion of it can be decided by somebody else because of your Blackness. Mm -hmm. I live in a world where my mom, for reasons we're still discussing, um, named us some of the whitest white names, um, right? <laughs> like other folks have these names that are like inventive and like cultural and we're like Barbara, Sharon, Jennifer, and Joseph. So I'm like that, my, you just can't get <laughs> much whiter than <laughs> this selection of names. But now I have to ask myself the question, how has that actually helped me? Because I now know for sure if your name is Lakeisha and people perceive that to be a black name, people start making decisions about whether or not to hire you, whether or not you're going to be a good fit, right? Like that's the kind of racism. And so I think, I think the point I'm trying to make in this very round set of things I've said, I think the point I'm trying to make is simply that there are both macro and micro expressions of racism that are fully rooted in my entire experience. Some of them from before I was born, some of them from having the experience of having grandparents who learned um, that safety came from being mindful of and watching um, how white folks were moving. And that part of what you were going to have to do is navigate that in order to find any semblance of success. In order to find any semblance of safety, you had to be prepared to anticipate their moves because um, their moves might leave you lifeless. Um, and then I was born to a set of parents who are activists, who are educators, who are like, oh no, we will know all the things. You guys, I literally had to do book reports on like black folks my whole life. I'm like, mom, but we're not in school. And she's like, mm-hmm, and you're gonna go look up <laughs> Mary McLeod Bethune and you're gonna understand who she is and her greatness and what she contributed to the world. And so I both, as I grew up, understood that there was this tension and there were these things and places and ways that people behaved that were meant to constrain me and my possibilities. And I grew up with a set of people who were like, we're going to defy that. We're going to resist that. We're going to push hard against that. We're going to create um, windows and avenues for you that the world would otherwise have you think weren't available to you. Um, and so I think in the places where I find myself resisting, in the places where I've resigned myself to have joy, regardless of what the world tries to tell me, um, it is a day-to-day -day set of choices because the world is constantly sending me signals, sending me messages that I am not enough. Um, Anti-Blackness is a real thing. Um, and it's, it's interesting to even encounter it in other communities of color. And it's interesting to continue to encounter it. Like there are people, I was on a panel with my college. I just got my doctorate, super fresh. And I'm like at my school, giving this presentation as a part of a panel. Um, and one of the women on the panel, it's, it's me, um, another black woman who's like a, a major department head um, in the school and two other, maybe three other white women. And the woman who is seated to my left keeps just being stunned by my answers. Like she literally keeps turning to me saying, oh my gosh, that's so, that's so articulate. Oh, that, that's such a good point. Oh, I mean, you're just so, oh, you're so impressive. Um, and that was like, I have a doctorate. <laughs> I have a doctorate. I am also an alum of this school. What did you expect? And one of my professors in the back of the room is having a fit, right? He's like, tell her to stop saying that because she just <laughs> kept saying it through the entire panel. And so that whole thing, right? And I speak a lot. And so, of course, I get that she speaks so well, right? Like all of these things that people don't even recognize as they're saying it is offensive, right? Like, yes, I actually do believe that I'm a pretty powerful speaker. I've worked on that. It's my craft. But also part of your reaction is you don't anticipate that from me. Part of your reaction is you decided I was somebody else. And so I've also had these experiences of just showing up and saying, I'm Barbara. And then having folks 
um, have made a set of decisions about what that must mean. Oh, yeah, you're Barbara, but you're also Black, but you're also, so that must mean all these things. And then again, be surprised by my contributions. Um, when I was in, I'll say this and then I'll pause. Um, when I was in undergrad, I was double majoring education and psych. Um, and we got to this place in social psychology, my absolute favorite class of undergrad. We got to this place where we're like talking about affirmative action and we're talking about um, racism and zero order beliefs and like really into, and I'm fascinated by it all because I'm like, oh, there's language and logic I can use to understand some of these things that I've been experiencing in the world. Like this is, this is fascinating. Um, <laughs> and we get to this place where we're talking about affirmative action and my classmates are like, I mean, Barbara, you know that we think you're like the goddess of psychology. Like you get all this stuff, you're getting A's on all these papers. Like, like so that's why, we, that's why you shouldn't have affirmative action. Like you're demonstrating that you like actually have, and I just couldn't stop laughing. And they're like, what? And I was like, do you not understand the foolishness of telling me I'm so smart, you think I need to take your perception of affirmative action? I'm, I'm so intelligent that I'm not wise, but I'm not wise enough to like be able to have my own stance on affirmative. I need to take yours because yours is logical in my, like any other. And so I said, how would you know if I wasn't here? And they were like, what? And I was like, you don't know that I'm not in here for affirmative action. You actually don't know, but my brilliance is only available because I'm in the room. How much brilliance has actually not been allowed to be in this room? How many people who look like me and are from where I'm from, I grew up in the neighborhood that was later deemed Hell's Kitchen. We didn't know that when we bought the house in the neighborhood. <laughs> but like in this moment in time, you are making a decision about entire populations of people being deficient. And you are telling yourself that I am somehow different from all of them and I deserve to be here, but none of them do. And I am them. I am not not them. And it's not a compliment to tell me I'm so different from whoever else you decided my people are. Um, and so that is, that is where I'll pause. <laughs> I'm not mm -hmm. sure how coherent that is. Um, but that is where I will pause in telling you my story. Um, as a Black woman in America, it is, it is an interesting experience of having many things be true at the same time. It is true that my parents um, set me up to understand what racism was, set me up to understand that it was out there, set me up to understand that other people's decisions about who I was had nothing to do with who I actually was and that I could fight against systems that set me up that way. But I also grew up in a family that has experienced racism from the very beginning of our experience in this country. Um, and even when I think it's not impacting me or influencing me, it's in my, it's in me because I've been exposed to it so long um, that pretending or imagining that I am somehow immune to it is foolish because when we go to Sam's Club, I'm still watching people behave in ways that indicate they think I'm less than them. They think they should be in front of me. They think they should, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, that's what I will say <laughs> for now mm. as we get started. Thank you so much. I think uh, that, especially when you started the conversation, I was literally having my goosebump. And it was not because it's cold here. It's like, I, I think I find your story to be so emotionally moving. And, uh, and, and it's coming from a place of, help me understand this a bit more, which is, I've only read racism as a black person as an, either in the context of a book, a film, or an analysis. Um, and, and, and hearing that story from you, um, wow, that, was, <laughs> that was really moving for me. Um, how young were you before you started formulating your sense of what racism is or was? Because I, I think because racism is such a such a complex feeling and, and, and topic, right? And it almost feels that most times you only understand racism when you look back retrospectively, whether you reflect or, or you, you, you relive the experience and what and make sense of it. But maybe when you're living through it, how how would that feel? Um, and, and how young or I guess um, when was it that probably felt like this is this is racism I'm experiencing it or this is what racism is when you reflect it? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, so we we lived between Milwaukee and Florida a lot when I was young, um, and when I was in Florida, I had the experience of both 
going to an essentially all black school and the experience of going to a much more predominantly white school. Um, and I remember, and then, and then schools that were mixed. Um, and I remember that there were a couple things around hair. Um, and so I remember that I had, there's a picture of my niece that looks like this in the room. Um, I had two like puffs parted down the middle, two ponytails with, with the um, Afro puffs. Um, Cause my mom was like, again, into the movement. And so like, we had Afros, we had Afro puffs, we had the whole bit. And also that's just like the natural state of my hair. Um, and I remember a moment in time where a little girl named Dodie and I were in class together and I moved to Milwaukee when I was in third grade. And so this is like really early in my trajectory as a human. Um, and I remember being startled by our hair being the same, but being different. She also had one part down the middle and two ponytails, but like her hair was hanging all the way down. And mine was like in these puffs. And I was like, this is so interesting. Um, like, how can we have the same hairstyle, but like have it be so fundamentally different? Like, I'm, like I'm intrigued by this. Um, and then I remember commentary about how like, yeah, it's just, you know, um, hers is just better. Um, and I was like, it's what now? And, and I also had had the experience then of having my hair pressed, which basically makes it look like this. Um, and so when that happened, I also kind of had this look of like, my ponytails are hanging down. Like, this is really interesting. Um, my hair can do both of those things. Can your hair do this thing? Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> like the whole course of this conversation and the adults who were like watching it go by, their take on like who had good hair was absolutely that Dodie had good hair. And my confusion of like, but, but my hair, I didn't know the word versatile yet, right? But I'm like, my hair can do a lot of stuff. Doesn't that make it better? How come hers is better? Um, and like not really being able to get to an answer that made sense to me and then taking it home to process with my family and like, yeah, that here's what was happening. I also remember instances of other kids um, getting to like, go before me or do something before and like being confused about why that was happening. And then when we moved from the South to the North, um, they were giving me these tests to gauge like whether or not I was ready for like third grade reading and like whether or not I, I could read on a sixth grade level in third grade. Cause like I wasn't, again, I'm having to write book reports at home. Like I, I'm real familiar with words. Um, and so, um, I, I now, to your point about retrospect, I recognize now that what that was, was a set of double assumptions. Surely you're not smart enough because you're Black. And also you can't be smart because you're Black from the South. Like that's a different kind of not smart um, is the perception that folks had. Um, and so then also remember her being mystified by my capacity, right? And so again, taking that home, like, I don't, I don't really know what this was, but it didn't feel right. And having that named, um, and also having my parents show up at school to have a set of conversations about assumptions that were being made about me. Um, and so I ended up right in the gifted and talented program, um, whatever, like the point simply being um, pretty early on, mostly in institutions um, is where I was bumping into that because as a kid, I remember my father saying he'd like not even seen anybody white till he was three or four and being completely freaked out by it. Um, but there's this experience of growing up black where most of the people that I was spending most of my time with in my family were black and the family friends were black and the community and the stores that we shopped at and the stuff that we did, like there was a lot of that. And so it was usually in institutions separate from or in public spaces where more people were that I would run into. Um, those kinds of experiences. So I think I knew pretty early on what racism was, was able to attach a name for it to both the things I was learning at home and my parents helping me process experiences that I had. But it was just a knowing that like somehow I'm not believed to be good or enough or it in a way that somebody else is when I feel like I am showing up and doing the exact same thing that they're doing. So why, why is that happening to me? Um, what is it that you've decided about me and why? Um, would you make a decision like that about me? 
I, I do have one more uh, just to extend on this, right? And 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 I'm coming from a very biased. Uh, I'm I'm going to be a dad anytime now. Uh, so my my wife is actually in uh, her thirty seventh week, so it's already full term. And uh, you know we are having a baby girl, and it's a in the context for us, we, we are an interracial couple, and we we have a, you know, a baby girl that's coming into the world, and. And that's where I'm trying to make sense of that as well, right? Um, and trying to really understand what is racism and, and through the lived experience that you have shared, I, I find it to be very profound. But at the same time, I'm wondering, how do I teach that lived experience um, for for young baby girl um, that would have to make sense of her world in her own capacity, right? Um, because the, 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 the thing that I, I, I'm always trying to balance is, right, is to what extent is racism taught, is what extent racism is experienced, and to what extent is once it's taught, you would create those experiences as well. Um, and that's just something that I, I'm trying to, to make sense. I wanted to, to I guess, like hear, hear your, uh, your, your thoughts around that. But I also wanted to read you uh, a, a quote. Um, from a book that I recently read and I, and I was very moved by, by this book. Um, it's a, it's a, one of my favorite authors that I recently discovered. I, I read this book called The Water Dancer. Uh, it's written by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, and this is the other book, which, is, which was actually a letter to his son. And I just wanted to tie back to that, that, that question around um, how you experienced it as well as uh, how do you make sense of you know, even racism and, and how young you were. Um, and this is the quote, right? But race is the child of racism, not the father. And the process of naming the people has never been a matter of genealogy and physiognomy so much as one of hierarchy. Difference in hue and hair is old, but the belief in the preeminence of hue and hair, the notion that these factors can correctly organize a society and that they signify deeper attributes, which are indelible. This is the new idea at the heart of this new people who have been brought up hopelessly, tragically, deceitfully to believe that they are white. And I, and I want to return back to this, this idea of what, what this text means to you as a, as a reaction. And I want to make sense together uh, with you. Yeah. Um, so I had a, a different set of thoughts around um, how is it taught, experienced, and perpetuated. Um, but the quote is is taking me to a couple other places in my mind. I think one of the other things that is caught up in what he's describing is also just this quest for dominance, right? And so I think, and, and the linkages to mm-hmm. all of this and money, um, right? And so there's both a protection that I've experienced of the authority, the superiority, the rightness, right? And having studied psychology, I'm like, whenever somebody's operating on superiority, it's because they got an inferiority complex. Like what's really underneath that is you actually don't um, believe that you are. So you've got to like assert this dominance to try to show up as if. Um, and so I think about what it means um, in, in the places when I am most generous, because I'm not always. But in the places where I'm most generous, I think about the quote that you read and I think about what it means to grow up believing that somehow whiteness is the preeminent factor that determines all the things. And I think about how like problematic that is because it's actually not an attribute of anything, right? Like, what does that mean? It, It means that like, you literally are in a battle with the sun. Like it means that you like literally are in a space of like not having um, dimension in the quality of your skin. Like, like how, how did we decide that was the thing? And the reality for me is um, that it is both about needing to assert dominance, needing to believe you are best, needing to have an argument for why you can subjugate another group of people forever, right? Like, like the, when people, slavery existed all over the world, I'm like, not like this. It, it never looked like this looks. It wasn't based on, except in places where there was colonization, it wasn't based on hair and hue. It wasn't based on, and, and by the way, you will forever be in this condition, right? You study other places and it's like seven years and then we'll figure it out or this amount of time and then we'll figure it out, right? But it wasn't, 
you and everybody who looks like you will forever be subjugated to the position of last. And we will do it systematically, right? We will do it both by having things like slavery as the organizing principle through which we get to continue to say whiteness rules. We will do it by creating redline systems that disenfranchise you from even voting for somebody who might actually make things better for you. We will do it by systematically disallowing you to have access to money and funding that might allow you to change the course of your experience. We will do it by setting up educational systems that by design, right? I love it when people are like, the system is broken. I'm like, well, actually, the system is doing exactly what it was designed to do because it was designed to sort and select based on, in many cases, color right and or based on money um but i'm also like running into experiences that say or to data and research that says that i with a doctorate married to somebody who is finishing his doctorate probably have less net worth than a white person finishing high school how is that possible well because generationally what's been set up is your family could get the loan and mine couldn't what's been set up is your family could get the job and mine couldn't so you are not better than me. You are statistically getting opportunity and access to things I do not, which then allows you to create a narrative of, they just won't work hard. These folks are working two and three jobs and not making the kind of money in either of them that actually allows them to care for their family. That's by design. That's not an accident. And that's not a root of like, they're just lazy. If that was true, then having the whole system of architecture built on us wouldn't make sense. Like, like that's illogical if <laughs> you follow it through, right? And yet that's the system design. And so you are growing kids up to believe that they are just hard workers and that they have just, I don't know if you've seen the series Little Fires everywhere. Um, it's on Netflix. It's crazy. Or it's on Hulu, actually. Um, Carrie Washington, Reese Witherspoon. And it's like this juxtaposed story of a white woman and a black woman. And the white woman is absolutely on the meritocracy argument, right? Like we have worked hard and made good choices. And mm -hmm. in the scene, Carrie's like, actually, you had good choices. You, you had available to you good choices that could be made. These other folks actually didn't have access to that. And the judgment, right? Like that's also for me, one of the most um, heinous hard parts of racism. It is the judgment of people, not as just less than, but as unworthy, as lazy, as not trying. When in fact, folks are doing all of those things only to find that those efforts that they're putting in still disavow them from access to tons of things. Um, and so when I think about growing up um, in my neighborhood and I think about the kids that were on my block and I think about what their families were experiencing and going through, and then I run into articles that are like, it's cause they don't have fathers. I'm like, Duh. let's also talk about that. <laughs> like, let's also talk about, I'm from Milwaukee, one of the worst places in the country for black folks to live because You've invested in building these systems and structures where someone in my family um, got a ticket for driving to work, um, had a ticket because she hadn't been able to pay for getting the license renewed, got a ticket, got another ticket off of that ticket, ended up getting arrested because she had these tickets that she couldn't pay, couldn't pay the tickets because she was trying to get to work, but she couldn't get to work. And like, you've now created this situation where she's actually going to end up unemployed and unable to pay these tickets. And she's got two kids to feed. But the story you will tell is she's just a terrible, horrible, no good mother who just like has made all these decisions, um, not recognizing that there's actually a hue and hair situation that is also a part of that. Disproportionately, when you look through the data, black folks are more likely to be arrested. Black folks are more likely to not have the kind of wealth um, that they need to navigate. Not wealth like I got it, but wealth like I can pay the mortgage and I don't have to worry about the lights getting turned off. Um, or renting from folks who won't take care of their properties. And then you blame them. Like, look how they live. Well, actually, the landlord hasn't come through here to do anything. Never mind shovel snow. Never mind mow the grass. Like, this house hasn't been touched since they left this neighborhood. Um, and you now blame the people who are living in the conditions for all the things. Um, and so I think in some ways that answer was responsive critique. If it wasn't, <laughs> please, please ask more questions. Um, but that's that's how I'm processing that in this moment. I think that racism is absolutely taught. I think you can't maintain a system like this without continually expressing to folks that this is how we live, this is what we believe, this is what is true. Um, I live in a new a neighborhood now 
then we moved in December. Um, and it's just been fun and funny and problematic watching people encounter us and watching them do the calculus. Okay, who, what do you do again? Um, okay, now, and, and people like ask anybody who moves into the neighborhood what they do, but there's just a little extra something on it. What, what do you do again? Huh, where are you from again? Huh, how are you able to live on my block is the underlying question, right? Mm. But we'll never get to that question. Um, but one of my lovely neighbors hung a Trump flag um, from their house the other day, mm. right? Mm. And yet they're like, hey, how are you? And I'm like, you fundamentally don't understand. You mm. fundamentally don't understand what that signals to me. Mm. Um, and in, in a world of like things I don't think I've said to you soon saying like Mississippi just voted by a predominant margin to take down the Confederate symbol off our flag. But like up until last week, I lived in a place that was in a debate about whether or not a Confederate signal symbol should be on our flag. I'm sorry, like logically, let's talk about this. You can tell me that it's about honoring history and heritage, but that means you're honoring literally the history and heritage of racism and slavery in this place. Mm. You're also honoring secession from the union. <laughs> like how is your flag that signals you are still a part of the United States also a signal that you wanted to not be a part of the United States? Like how does that work? <laughs> like I don't understand. <laughs> um, and that flag is costing you money, but your, your need to hold on to hair and hue as the deciding factors is actually cutting you off from the money you need to run your estate because folks won't come here. Literally the SEC and the NCAA, those, those are sports things. My husband knows these sports things, right? <laughs> but like baseball and um, I think it's, I think no football and uh, basketball said they wouldn't come here for championships as long as that was the flag. And still people were like, so, <laughs> we were losing business. I've actually had a hard time recruiting teachers um, to be a part of the program because they're like, I don't know, I don't know about that place. Is there racism in the state or is in the country? But you also are still flying a flag that symbolizes love of racism and hatred and, and division. How do you think that's okay? <laughs> but they did. And then out of nowhere, which is how and why I still have hope in the midst of this thing being taught and experienced and perpetuated, they decided to take it down in a vote of like 93 to something in the House and a vote of like 36 to 14 in the Senate, all at once, after much pushing, after much conversation, after much fight, um, they finally have decided to no longer have that be the flag. And so my hope lives in the idea that um, even if I don't see it in my lifetime, I will in my lifetime see major things start to shift that signal to everybody the day of living on the basis of hair and hue can't continue to be what we're doing. It's actually disrupting, not just this moment in time, but it's like separating us from being what we might be as a country, as a nation to the world. Because when you build a jail for someone, you have to stay there to tend to it. And so nobody is growing in the ways that they might as we continue to try to hold people in place. Wow. That's what <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. Um, the, I think that why this is so important for us and why, why we do this is, is, is because of this idea of the discourse, right? And I think that it is through the discourse that we, we learn um, and we understand uh, more, right? And so I think a question that I have is, how do we have that discourse? Um, and so I think that personally for myself, I have, uh, you, you know, and I can't even, I can't even speak from, from your perspective as, as a black woman who actually like is a direct recipient of, of um, acts of racism, right? But when I, I have seen comments or I have spoken with people that have, you know, like racism doesn't exist um, or that, uh, you know, there's, there's the whole, and, and I think more often than not, especially in our context, there's the piece of like, it's not just black lives that matter, it's all lives that matter. And, and um, sort of like having like to, if, if I'm being like honest, I have obviously have 
a bias and believe a certain set of uh, things. And so when I hear those things, I get really triggered and I'm like, instead of just calmly having the discourse with someone about like, actually this is, this is you know, what this means and here, here's how we can unpack that and figure it out. I, I, I automatically get triggered by it. Um, and so maybe, maybe to just, just to, to address that directly, um, I don't know if, if it, I apologize if this is frustrating and if you've done this a billion times, but if you could help, help us just to share um, a little bit about what that means, right? Like what the difference between Black Lives Matter and, and All Lives Matter. Um, and then beyond that, just what has the experience of the discourse holding space uh, been yeah. like for you? Um, <laughs> um, I, think, I think one of the statistics I've run into while holding space is that data from like, oh my gosh, maybe 2013 to 2019 um, shows that you are three times more likely to be killed by the police if you are Black, even though you're 1.3 times less likely to be carrying a weapon, um, is a statistic that I invite people to consider, right? And so for me, um, part of the, the discourse, part of the dialogue, um, even though people don't, still don't necessarily buy the argument, right? I still don't think there's racism. I'm like, then help me understand the persistence of these kinds of statistics. And let's also separate out the criminality because one of the ways this country has perpetuated racism is to send the idea that it is black and brown people who are doing all these heinous things. Even though when you look at the numbers, the sheer numbers, it, there's a very different story available. So that's one thing I think about. Um, and then I think about exposing people to things like the 13th Amendment um, that, um, Ava DuVernay, I believe, directed, right? Like that actually helps to also bring you into the realities of how the prison system is set up very much like the slavery system, right? All the way down from you are making money off these people to you are curtailing their freedom, not only in the moment for the thing that they've done, but like forever. You're going to be labeled a felon. You're not going to be able to vote. Like I am, I am literally taking you out of the population for now and for later. Right. And so part of what I've done in the discourse is like tried to help people get situated in the actual stories of people and in the actual population data that is available and just ask people to sit with that. Like, help me understand that. Do you truly believe that everybody who looks like me is doing all this crime, is choosing this life? Like, like do you really believe that? And, and how about you just sit with and wrestle with the context of like this being a thing? Um, how about you consider that the year my mother was born, 1954, which is also why she's an activist um, and why she like fought in so many ways, um, is the same year that they did the Brown versus Board of Education, but they also had the like doll study as a part of that. And showing that you, we were actually teaching young black children to prefer whiteness. We were actually teaching them, right? And so one of my offerings um, to you and your soon to be baby is like, make sure that there's a wild collection of not just one kind of doll and one kind of story. Because I think part of what happens is these messages are available. And when you think that there's not racism, you don't say anything to the opposite of that. And so people just begin to experience racism as the smog that they're living in and breathing in. And before you know it, you've got a kid that prefers a doll that doesn't look like her. Before you know it, you've actually created a situation where they begin to believe whiteness must be better because whiteness is all that's available right? There's all kinds of people on TV now, and still, a lot of it is oriented around very particular narratives. The more that people who look like us begin to direct and push and challenge folks who don't look like us, the more you see a wider view, but there's still so much of that readily available. Um, so that's one thing. The all lives matter thing, back to the statistic of three times more likely to be killed by the police. Um, yeah, sure, all lives matter. And also, if we understood that all lives mattered, we wouldn't be afraid to say that Black lives matter. If we really understood that all lives mattered, we wouldn't be afraid to recognize that these particular lives don't seem to matter so much. And you'd also get beyond the idea of Black lives matter being about Black folks being killed by the police. If Black lives matter, and we actually understood that and believed that, we would check our anti-Blackness bias. If we understood that and believed that, we would understand that it's actually not just about dying in the street, 
It is also fundamentally about the experience of living while Black. It is also the experience of having people in microwaves and in macroways keep sending you signals that you are not right and the world is not going to treat you fairly because of your hair and your hue, right? Continuing to play on that theme. And um, there's, there's, a, there's a ton of people who have made this argument um, the only other thing I will say about it from my perspective and what I've described to people is, um, and there's a, there's a Nikki Giovanni um, poem that I won't remember correctly, um, where she talks about this world is actually not going to be right for all people until white women are as concerned about Black children dying as she is about her own children. As long as we are able to say that when a kid turns 10 in any other um, any other community that they are still cherished, that they are still a child, that we are still protecting their innocence, but we don't do that for Black kids. There's data and research that shows that by the time, and actually before, Black children turn 10, they stop being seen as cute. They stop being seen as innocent. They start stop being seen as children and start being treated like and called adult. Um, and like, while that's true, Black lives can't matter. While we still have the experience of Black kids being suspended at disproportionate rates, being put into special ed at disproportionate rates, generally having their very young lives being treated as something wrong, then Black lives don't actually matter. And if we want all lives to matter, we have to start prioritizing in a way that we have deprioritized Black lives. And if we did that for Black people, then we do that for more people and we truly would be in a situation where all lives matter. It is not meant to say other lives don't matter. It's actually not about that. It is about the recognition that this particular population since forever has been treated in this country like they don't. Like they are here only um, to operate in subservience to the, the, money, um, the money attainment of others, to the success of others, to the benefit of others. Like that is how we have actually been treating Black folks in this country. And um, we have treated them as second-class citizens while expecting from them all the things we expect from any citizen. But you better pay your taxes, but you better be a part of this system. You better go work at one of my companies. You better, like, like you should do all those things and you should expect that you are not going to be treated like a full citizen in any other way. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, not so much for you. Um, but show up and do all these other things that make it possible for me to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, when we get this right um, and recognize the disproportionate impact of marginal marginalization on Black folks, then we will actually be able to say all lives matter because they don't right now. It's clear in our treatment of people that they don't right now. Um, what else did you ask me to talk about? You said holding spaces for people. Um, I've been doing that a lot, um, and there is this expectation that I had that doing it, like creating spaces for Black folks in particular, um, creating spaces for mixed groups, like I had this theory that I was going to be mentally exhausted because emotionally you're dealing with the toxicity of racism. Like people are telling their stories and bearing their souls, um, and it's just a lot. And even in psychology, like you have to have a psychologist that you can go and process whatever you've experienced with. Instead, what I've found though, um, is that it is giving me energy and giving me um, hope and encouragement to be able to create those kinds of spaces for people. Even when their stories are hard, even when their experiences are tough, um, and I've been calling them witnessing circles, being able to be witnessed in that moment just matters. And being able to be connected in community as we process our pain um, has just mattered. And being able to be a part of creating, conducting, supporting people through those processes has actually given me a level of energy that I just didn't expect to be what would happen. Um, and is also making me better able to describe firsthand, secondhand, thirdhand experiences that also help people in other spaces get more proximate to what is going on. Um, several of my friends, several other people who've been in these spaces, again, to, to critique thinking about your, your baby, um, several of them have described what it means to be telling their very young children about racism at way earlier ages than they anticipated. And so back to this 10-year-old thing, one of my dearest colleagues um, has a 10-year-old. She's like, he loves 
everybody. We moved in a new neighborhood. He's hugging everybody. He's talking to everybody. Like he loves everybody and everything. This child is just like love personified. And I've not got to have a conversation with him about being black. I've not got to have a conversation with him about being black in America. I've not got to have a conversation with him about the realities of not just if the police stop us, here's what you got to do. But as you're going to school and as you're in the world, people might say, people might do, I've got to watch the hate you give with my son and bring him into a whole nother understanding of the world that I don't want to do because I don't want to interrupt his innocence. And also it's irresponsible not to prep him for what he's going to encounter and not have words for and not have any kind of emotional awareness of before it crushes him. Um, And, and she's not the only one. There was, um, I don't know if you've seen it, Kedron Bryant, um, young man, I think he's 12. um, And he has this incredibly powerful, soulful song where he sings, I just want to live. And I've played that in my spaces that I've held and just ask people to consider what it means that little black boys are begging to live. Like that is part of the reality. Um, And I've not played it once without crying. Um, I've not played it once without like being fully checked into the emotional experience of what it means that like that is the state of our world. Um, And it is in those moments that I also remember that even if I think it's wrong, when I think about what the turning tides were for the civil rights movement, when I think about what the turning tides were for with George Floyd first, like actually getting into a real place of conversation about what is wrong, um, I think about the experiences that people actually get when they are more proximate to the pain that this experience is creating, and in particular, the pain that this experience is creating for young people. Um, if there will be something that turns heads and hearts it will be understanding the impact of this on kids. After all, that is what led a bunch of white Supreme Court justices to make a decision to stop having separate and unequal. Um, And those folks went back to their communities and caught it because we told you not to do that and you did. But when you really understand the ramifications of this on kids, many people, not all, but many people are moved to do something different. Um, And so I... I think that's part of what I'm sitting with as I continue to hold space for people. Um, How do I help people witness what is happening? And how do I, with permission, carry those stories into other spaces to help folks remember the humanity experience, right? It's not just, oh yeah, those Black people over there. These are human beings who are having an experience that doesn't work. Um, And Sun Sang knows, like my whole journey into conscious leadership, I'm like, yeah, but some things are wrong. (laughs) <laughs> right? Like the, the whole idea of conscious leadership, like nothing's wrong and just be with what's so. And um, part of what I learned in our journey together this time is that I can still see um, when things are not right. And I can still be about the business of trying to help shift um, what is so to what could be so, um, to what should be so, because it is wrong to tell an entire population of people that they are less than, that they have always been less than, that they will always be less than, and to have that argument be largely based on melanin, to have that argument be largely based on whatever the first language was if it wasn't English. Like, it just doesn't work. Um, And I just want to be a force for supporting people who are experiencing it and for supporting people in recognizing that it is there. Racism is real. (laughs) Um, And we can do something about it. Um, and I just want to keep showing up in ways that allow me to do that. Um, and soon saying I'm learning to feel all my feelings. So when I'm frustrated, I am frustrated um, with people who say things that don't work. Um, and what I am figuring out and, and keep being reminded of is that um, if what I really want is for people to hear me, the hotter I am when I speak, the less likely they are to hear. And so how do I orient from a place that doesn't, that doesn't deny my frustration Um, but that also keeps the channel open enough um, that folks are actually hearing me. And everybody's not in that place. Some folks are like, actually, no, (laughs) we're just going to tear this down. Um, And I understand that. Um, And I am making decisions about how to lead in this moment based on what I'm finding that works. Um, And what I find that works is trying to actually get into conversation. So grateful for this. I I think uh, I'm going on. Um, I think, Something that uh, that uh, that I think is really powerful, and 
which is what we're we're making sense of. And I think in Malaysia as a society, we shy away from the conversation. Um, and I think what we're hoping to unpack is 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 like how do we actually have this conversation? Mm-hmm. And so in the in the series that we're doing, we're talking to different people um, about like different facets of what racism means in in our local context. And it's really interesting because I think that we are what what uh, what I think I've observed of you is just a proficiency uh, in an ability to articulate and talk about the issues. And I think that that's something that we don't have uh, as a society because we talk about it so rarely. So even as we listen back to mm. our recordings, we're thinking about hmm, the way that we're expressing ourselves, like, like there's still a way to go in terms of like understanding how we express and, and orient towards uh, certain things that are happening. So I just think that there's something like really powerful about that. Uh, I think part of my experience has been like bewildered a little bit at how the United States of America is still grappling with this issue and why this is such a massive issue for the United States of America. Um, it, it, I, when we were in Memphis last year together, I, I went to visit the Martin Luther King uh, mm-hmm. Junior Museum, right? And that, mm-hmm. that just like blew my mind at how recent everything has been, right? It's like the so civil rights movement was so, so, so recent. Um, and, uh, and, and so I'm like, if America hasn't figured this out, how, how's the rest, how are the rest of us supposed to figure it out? But I think that what's helpful and what's so powerful for me in this experience is just the, at least the proficiency at which we can name what's going on um, and the ability to have a discourse and dialogue about it um, gives me a sense of hope that there will be progress. Yeah. And yeah. I think that despite uh, the how horrific and traumatic the time is i think that there is it's giving birth to something that that across the world um we will hopefully see a shift i think that the like the ripple effects of um the george floyd uh issue and black lives matter like the amount of things that are happening like in the the malaysian context as a result of of that is, is unprecedented in the ways in which we're talking about what racism means in our local context. So, yeah, I think that that, that like, as, as I, I think on the put, like, on the other end of the tension from, from feeling a sense of, like, despair, and, and this is totally, like, not the world that we want to live in, there is a, there is a sense of hope that, that, that things can be better. And, and I think that there is a piece or there's a responsibility that we all have to to have the dialogue, to have the discourse, to journey together and make sense of uh, make sense of all of this. Uh, and so, just wanted to say thank you so much for allowing us uh, this space to be able to make sense and figure it out with you. And I, I'm as much as we record this just for ourselves. I think this is just going to make a difference for for the people that do listen in as well. I'm so grateful to both of you for creating space, for caring, um, and for creating space, not only for me to share, but for other folks to have access and learn. Um, I'm thinking about what it means that, like, my mom actually, you mentioned King, my mom actually marched with him. Um, So when I think about the recency, like, it's recent. Um, And... And I think the other thing that gets lost when people say like, it's been 400 years and then people are like, oh, 400 years. I'm like, oh, and ongoing, right? Like it hasn't stopped the legacies, the horrid legacies of the way that racism has moved in this country have only become more deeply ingrained and entrenched. And still I too have hope um, that something else could be true. And I think what I will offer to you about America being here is that this is the only country I've ever lived in. Um, and there are many things about it, particularly what's written about it and what it's supposed to be that make sense to me. And also this country was founded in violence. This country was founded in racism. This country began by telling another group of people, you can't have the land you live on. And so it's not surprising to me right? Because it is the legacy of this place. Um, I think we could have a different legacy. We've always spoken of a different legacy. 
and we behaved in ways that don't align with the things we've written down about who we aspire to be. Because even when we wrote those things down, we just weren't counting several people. <laughs> we just weren't counting um, groups of people who were here and doing things and trying um, to get it organized into what the country has become. And the, the only other reason I said that is since saying is because it is also the attention of the world that is making America pay more attention to itself. And so as folks are gathering around the planet and saying what happened to George Floyd is murder, it never should have happened, it is not okay. As the rest of the world says that to America, who's used to telling the world, right? It is gaining attention in a very different way. Um, and so I am grateful to every country um, where they also decided to protest, where they also decided to call it out, like that is not okay. Um, and it is not, there, there is no rationale anybody will ever be able to give me for eight minutes and 46 seconds of death on film. And also the technology of the moment has brought that to the world in a way that wasn't available when my mom was protesting as a teenager. And so all of that, I have hope that things can be better and different despite all the evidence that might lead me to a different conclusion. Um, and I'm always grateful about opportunities to think about that and talk about that to other people. Um, so thank you for creating this space with and for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm. A pleasure. <laughs> mm. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you and see you next time.